Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Steve Hadley and Tom Donilon were both national security advisors to the president. Steve for George W. Bush and Tom for Barack Obama. I worked closely with both during my time at CIA. I just sat down with both of them to talk about the national security environment as we head into a new year, a new decade, and a presidential election year. We'll be right back with that conversation after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Steve, Tom, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. Mm -hmm. It's great to have you back. It's great to have you both together. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Tom, to give credit where credit is due, it was your idea to get together some national security advisors at the start of the new year and have a conversation about about national security and the challenges we face. Why did you suggest that? Yeah, I suggested it because I think that uh, that the current president and the next president are going to face a really broad array of challenges in the national security and foreign policy area. You know, we're going through a period of significant change in the world. We've had a significant uh, change in direction out of the Trump administration in terms of its approach to foreign policy. Uh, and the, the, issue, the list of issues is, raw, is long. Uh, the issues are um, in national security and foreign policy, but also on the domestic side, I think, that affect uh, foreign policy. So I thought it might be interesting to get together with uh, former colleagues to talk about the full range of issues uh, and how the pre- next president, uh, whether it's President Trump reelected or a Democratic president, might address those issues. Yeah. And then, Steve, I sent you a note saying this, Tom had this idea, and within five minutes you came back and said, great idea, you know, count me in. Why did you so quick to say yes? We have a lot of discussion 
that is heavily politically charged and is about the political implications of whatever the issue is of the day. And I don't think there's enough discussion about the issues themselves. What's at stake for the country and what we need to do if we are going to ensure the prosperity and security for the American people going forward. That's a conversation that's getting lost in all the politics. And I thought your show in particular was a way where we could showcase a bit of a more substantive discussion of what the issues are that are going to determine our future. Great. So I have this kind of triangle concept of national security. I'm just going to run this by you guys, which is at one corner you have the issues, whether it's China or Iran or North Korea or whatever you want to put there. And there are the conversations about objectives and strategy and tactics. And then at the other corner of the triangle are our capabilities, our military capabilities, diplomatic capabilities, um, intelligence capabilities to actually carry out those strategies and those tactics. And then at the final corner of the triangle, you have sort of political will to actually do what we need to do overseas. So I want to, if it's okay, touch on each three of those corners as we go through this conversation for the next 40 minutes. Mike, I think one of the things I would say that is new really in the last few years is it's, it's clear it's not a triangle, it's actually a four-cornered play. Mm -hmm. And the last corner is the communication and the American people and the domestic roots and domestic support for our foreign policy and national security. I think there's an appreciation among national security types that the domestic element uh, uh, of having the support of the American people and whether we're addressing the problems here at home sufficiently so people feel comfortable playing the role that the United States has traditionally played in the world, that's another element that has to be addressed, I think now more urgently in a way that 10, 15 years ago, probably it was a, tri, uh, a triangle, if you will, or a tripod. I think now we have to recognize there's a new fourth pillar to all of this. Well, maybe this is where I, we I, should I, start, I, right? I think Steve's right about that. It's just on the capability side, it's not just, you know, we talk about the traditional capabilities. What are our military capabilities? What are our intelligence capabilities? What are our diplomatic capabilities? Uh, but I think it's also very important, given the specific challenges we face, is to talk about what our domestic capabilities are. Indeed, I think mm -hmm. some of the most important things that we're going to be discussing in national security right. in the next period is going to be what kind of investments are we making for example, in meeting the China challenge in terms of research and development and our technology capabilities. What kind of investments are we making in terms of our infrastructure and our human capital? Uh, these are, they, they are really pretty critical. And, and most importantly, I think, what are we doing to make our system work better? Uh, mm -hmm. So I agree with Steve. I think, it's a, I think that it's, a, it's kind of a, a new landscape here and these domestic capabilities that give us the strength to project our values and interests into the world are really important. And I would say we need to start with those. Because if we step back, and, and we've sort of been on a holiday for the last couple decades in many ways mm -hmm. about the national security challenges we face, and really figure out what we need to do to get our economy going, to get our innovation cycle going, to, to in some sense, get yeah. back to what put America in its 
preeminent position after the end of the Cold War. If we get back to those things and have a robust domestic agenda, it will establish a platform which will allow us to deal with whatever comes in in the national security foreign policy, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's something we haven't foreseen. Really, I think we have to understand that national security and foreign policy, your tripod in some sense, is going to start with the platform on which that tripod rests, mm -hmm. which is our domestic capabilities, political, economic, technological, you name it. Okay, so let me, take, let me take both of those, right? <clears throat> the communications piece to the American people and then the foundation piece of, of everything that happens here domestically. And the communications question is, how do we talk to the American people about the importance of the U.S. being engaged in the world? When I travel around the country, people say to me things like, Michael, why does it matter to me in Akron, Ohio, what Vladimir Putin does in eastern Ukraine? Or why does it matter to me, Michael, in Des Moines, Iowa, what the Chinese <clears throat> are doing in the South China Sea? How do we do a better job talking to the American people about why it's so important for us to play a leadership role in the world? Um, you've, you've put your finger on a very important point. I think um, it's not just the communication problems. I think the elites, up until the election of President thought, Trump, thought it was all just the communication problems. We're just not explaining to the American people well enough what is the, why it, it redounds to America's prosperity and security to be active in the world. Uh, I think after the Trump election, we realized that the problem was more fundamental. And I think uh, there have been accumulated grievances over the 10 years that led to the election of President Trump in 2016. People that feel victimized by globalization, threatened by immigration, abandoned by their politicians, betrayed by the elites. Uh, I think you won't be able to have a successful conversation with Americans about America's role in the world unless you address these underlying grievances. Once you do that, once people get some confidence that the American dream still is real, that their children are going to have a more secure and prosperous life than they are, then you can begin to re-engage the conversation about why the United States needs to be engaged in the world and what values and principles we need to stand up for. I think until you address these underlying grievances, I think that argument is going to be an uphill argument with the American people. I think we should engage in it, but I think we have to recognize that the platform has some cracks mm -hmm. and they need to be addressed and then you can start your communications mm -hmm. effort. Yeah, there are, there are certainly obviously domestic challenges that have to be that have to be uh, addressed, and 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 it's, and it's a com it's a complicated thing given the fast pace of change mm -hmm. uh, that the society and the world is facing. But I actually think that the American people, if you look at the data, it shows this really do understand the importance of United States engagement in the world, really do want to have the United States have strong relationships with its allies, do understand uh, that what happens in trade talks and. Uh, dynamics around the world actually impacts on their uh, on their on their lives, and they for sure want to see the United States admired uh, admired in the world. So, in terms of shoring up the domestic peace, the investments that we need to make in AI or whatever it is, is there a historical parallel to this, or is this is is this new territory? I think there's a historical parallel. I think that basically there's a bit of kind of a in some ways we've had a bit of amnesia about how we've gone about this in the past. Right. Um, you know, if you think about, for example, China, we've been involved in this very 
difficult back and forth with China over the last, uh, over the last couple of years um, on trade, but also including broader issues, including technology and defense issues and geopolitical issues. But what is the real way we can have an impact, right? It basically would be investments here and revitalizing our own ability to compete. There is a historical parallel to that. Uh, and it's after, in the period after World War II with the United States, uh, led by the government, but in but another triangle, right? In kind of a triangle there was mm -hmm. the government and universities and private sector companies uh, engaged in a determined effort to lead in technology. And we were the beneficiaries of that for almost three quarters of a century. Uh, we have obviously a, a famous moment, right? The Sputnik moment, mm -hmm. which is almost a cliche, but it had a really big impact in this country. And we haven't had a similar kind of moment in the face of the Chinese challenge that we had in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Just for 10 seconds, what happened? We created, in a, in a year after Sputnik, we created NASA. We had the Defense Education uh, Act. We created OPERA, the forerunner of DARPA. Uh, we made investments in, um, uh, in technology here that we basically lived off for a long time. Uh, and we haven't had that same kind of focused, kind of joint public-private effort that we had um, we had during the Sputnik, uh, Sputnik period. So I do think there are historical parallels. We have an American system, that triangle I described, I think, which has been very successful, and we've let it languish to some extent, including, by the way, serious reductions in the amount of money the government invests in basic R&D. We've also had, though, um, a political disaffection between the three pieces of the triangle. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. government... Um, is not popular on university campuses these days, so that close connection between universities and government research is strained. Uh, we've had whole industries come of age. Initially, the telecommunications industry, then the computer industry, now uh, in terms of social media and internet companies, and they have all had to learn that while they start in divine isolation where the United States government is the enemy, when they get to the point that they become critical infrastructure for this country, they suddenly become, whether they like it or not, national security players and national security assets. And they have responsibilities to the American people to work with the government, to work with universities in that triangle. Silicon Valley is learning that lesson. I think they went to the point of the government is the enemy. I think you've seen some recent statements, for example, uh, by uh, Jeff Bezos, for example, and I think the head of Microsoft said, of course we need to be working with the U.S. government. And if employees don't like it, they need to understand that's part of our responsibilities. We need to move in that direction. We need to knit back that relationship between government, universities, and business. Uh, because it is innovation in the end of the day that is going to determine the American position, that platform with which we are going to deal with the problems of the So this is, this is, you know, getting the platform right yeah. is a huge issue. Huge. Right? Huge. It's going to be extraordinarily challenging to accomplish what, what you guys just walked through. Is it going to require an, a Sputnik-like moment, or is it possible to get there a different way? Well, we should have had the Sputnik moment, I think. I mean, if you look at we've never really had, Steve, you need to probably agree with this, we've never really had kind of the competitor we have in China right now. That's it. Uh, this is our Sputnik moment. It's yeah. China. Yeah. And it's, a, uh, it, it's very different from the Soviet Union. Right. Uh, we had moments when we thought we were actually in sort of technological competition with the Soviet Union, but we really never really were. 
Uh, we had an arms we had an arms race, right? But in terms of the fundamentals of the society, this is a much more much more direct challenge, and it's across a range of technologies, which are going to be the technologies, the platforms of the future, uh, where first mover advantage will mean a lot. We're really kind of taking leadership positions will mean a lot in terms of our security and our prosperity. So we have that moment right now. Um, there really isn't any reason, Mike, I don't know what uh, Steve would say to this, beyond political will that we can't move forward. We can afford it. Uh, indeed, I think that history will look back on the, this moment and ask us why, given the cost of money, which has been exceedingly low, right, for mm -hmm. a long period of time and continues to be quite low, mm -hmm. why you haven't made investments in things that you know are going to have positive returns going forward. So we have that, we have the resources, we, ha we should have the motivation, uh, but we don't at this point have got really kind of gotten, our gotten ourselves organized around having the political will. And that's the thing that really is most concerning to me, which is this kind of system breakdown, this inability to do things which are really quite obviously the national, quite obviously the national interest. I agree with Tom. Yeah. We've known that we need to make infrastructure investments. We've known actually that we have a problem with social security. We've actually really known what to do about it. We know what we really need to do on immigration, seal the border, and then address the immigration issues at home. We've known the solutions for these things for about 20 years. <clears throat> Our politics is broken and not producing those kinds of outcomes, not solving problems. That's what we've got to do. We've been, we've been sort of on holiday. And the interesting thing about China is we've never faced a competitor that is as robust as China is politically, economically, diplomatically, soon militarily, but also a competitor with whom we are also intertwined mm -hmm. in a series of relationships. And I've said that the issue is can be, we be both strategic competitors and strategic cooperators with China at the same time. This is, I don't think there are many historical parallels for something like that. That is the challenge about how we get to a peaceful and prosperous world for our people and for the Chinese people. So what people. do you think our objectives should be with regard to our relationship with China? And then the strategy that you would put together to achieve that? Uh, I, th I think we have to figure out, for example, I'll give you just an example. In terms of the global infrastructure and technologies in which China clearly wants a dominant role and which we want to also be players because these artificial intelligence, um, uh, quantum computing, uh, autonomy, these are the technologies that are going to define how our societies are structured, how our militaries are structured. How our intelligence is structured. How our intelligence is structured. So how are we going to... How are we going to manage this competition? I think one of the things we have to do is, one, get our own house in order. We need to get ourselves in a position so that we can compete. Two, I think we have to prioritize. We have to figure out those areas where we not only have to compete, but we have to win. For example, digital infrastructure. We cannot permit China and Huawei to lay the digital infrastructure uh, for the 21st century. There are too many vulnerabilities associated with that. So second, find out areas, prioritize areas where we really have to succeed. Third, work with China and try and get it to embrace positive global standards. Where they do, for example, in infrastructure, if they adopt global standards, build infrastructure that is physically, environmentally uh, uh, sustainable, um, that benefits the countries in which it's built, 
let them have at it. We should support them. We should cooperate with them. I think that's the kind of analysis we have to get through. Put ourselves in a position to compete. Figure out those areas of priority where we have to succeed. Figure out terms by which we can cooperate with China in other areas, because we have to recognize that a lot of the problems the world faces, whether it's environmental, management technology, whether it's proliferation, which is financial stability, an awful lot of problems cannot be solved if the United States and China with the rest of the world do not cooperate together. Yeah. You know, Mike, it's interesting on that, just to comment just a minute on that. You know, Dean Ashton had a phrase called situations of strength, right, that you wanted to deal from when you're dealing with these problems. And that, that's essentially what we're talking about in the first instance, which is, which is really building up you know, the strength, the platforms we talked about at home and making determinations about which areas are we going to lead in terms of technologies uh, and, the, and the industries of the future going forward. The second thing is, is that we don't really have a strategic dialogue with the Chinese right now. We have a trade negotiation. Uh, and that's just not responsible, frankly, right. uh, for the two most important countries in the world who are going to be the most important countries for this century, not to have a broad discussion, to understand each other's intentions, uh, to understand uh, where each other's uh, kind of concerns are, where their red lines are, and how you might engage in cooperative as well as competitive, competitive aspects. The third piece of it, from my perspective, is allies. And I think we have really... Um, uh, really underplayed the role of allies in all these situations we've talked about, whether it be China or North Korea <laughs> or Russia, um, not investing more in allied Iran, investing more in allied approaches has really, I think, hurt us, hurt us um, uh, badly. And it really, if I, for the next president, uh, I think it needs to be a really important focus. And last is the importance of values. Uh, this is a strength for the United States around the world, right? It has been, it has been one of the reasons what we, we've been seeing as the kind of attractive power that we've been seeing since, since uh, for the last 75 years. And we've lost, the, we've lost the bead, I think, on this values leadership. So those kind of situations of strength kind of in a strategic way, along with a strategic dialogue with China, I think is, a, is, is the way to go. But we have to, this can't just be a trade negotiation, right, between the United States and China. That's not a responsible, it's important, it's a necessary thing to do. Uh, we need to protect ourselves uh, in, the, uh, in the economic world. We need to protect our workers and businesses. We need to get fair play. But that, that's not the whole story. It's not even near the whole story. And uh, recently there's been press reports that we are going to open a resumption of what was called the Strategic Economic Dialogue and that uh, Sec Treasury Secretary Mnuchin is going to lead it. And that's a good development. But at least in the Bush administration, and even more so in the Obama administration, it was broadened. It was not just economic. And the, under the Bush administration, it was co-chaired by the Secretary of State mm -hmm. and Secretary of Defense mm -hmm. to do both the diplomacy and economic. And in the Obama administration, they added explicitly a security leg as well, uh, and a security aspect to that dialogue. That's the kind of robust, full-spectrum conversation we need to have with the Chinese. That's what Tom's talking yeah. about, wanna, and he's absolutely right. I want to underscore Tom's point about allies, because yeah. history history's pretty clear that the Chinese do respond when a coalition of nations yeah. says something clearly to them, and that's missing at the moment. Yeah. And I think that's the way you ultimately get them to play by the set of rules that we all want to get them to play by. I think that's right. And I think it, 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 in almost all these areas, including China, Mike, I think you're right, and that is the history. Uh, that we, when you have an opportunity to present kind of a set of facts to the Chinese with a, with a, a, a unified global approach 
uh, you have a much better chance, I think, at getting at getting a better at getting a better result. We had that with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, mm -hmm. I think, for example. Mm -hmm. There's a book that uh, Bob Blackwell and Graham Allison wrote about some conversations they had with Lee Kuan Yew, who was the founder of yeah. of Singapore, and they asked him whether China wants to do displace the United States at the top of the world order, and I'm going to get this wrong, but the gist of it is right, and Lee Kuan Yew said, sure, why not? <laughs> and they asked him, well, do you think they'll succeed? And Lee Kuan Yew said, thought about it for a while apparently, and said, no, but they'll give you a run for your money. And why won't they succeed? And he said, well, because they will draw from a population of 1.3 million, and you will draw from the rest of the world. And that's an important word, you know, message about allies, it's important a message about immigration. It's important a message about values. That's our strength. And what Tom is saying is right now we're not playing to our strengths. And that's what we need to get back Step to. Step back, Mike, and think about, kind of look at the globe, kind of geostrategically, mm -hmm. and think about the potential platform, both economically and politically, that the United States can muster, right, in order to pursue, you know, the goals it has for how we think a fair international political and economic order should run, and we're just not taking advantage of that, uh, the platform that we have access to and that we could lead. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Tom Donilon and Steve Hadley. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So let's stay in the same neighborhood, but move on to North Korea. We discovered the North Korean nuclear weapons program in the early 1990s, and not a single administration since then has figured out a way to stop the program or even to slow it down. So how do we how do we deal with North Korea? What what approach makes sense to you guys? Well, let Steve go first because I'm going to disagree with your premise. Okay. I want to go okay. I, I would say we've had not the first time. <laughs> we've had three administrations: Clinton, Bush, forty three, and Obama, that got uh, deals with North Korea in which they agreed to give up all or a portion of their nuclear program. And none of the three administrations were able to keep the North Koreans in the deal. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of reasons, a lot of blame to go around, but that's the reality. And I have uh, reluctantly come to the conclusion that um, they're not going to give up their nuclear program in the short run. Um, and what we really need to do is we need to be prepared not to accept the legitimacy of that program, but we have to... Um, with our allies in the region, prepare to be able to deter their use of that program and to defend against it if it's used. And not just defend the homeland of the United States, but to defend our friends and allies. 
Uh, and if we take that position and make it absolutely clear to the North Koreans that they get no leverage out of their program and instead will live in splendid isolation in what is really one of the most backward regimes in the world, it may be at some point they will begin to try to move in a different direction. But I think one of the things the Trump administration got right is unless the North Koreans make a strategic decision to move in a different direction, to really give up this reliance on the military, on the nuclear weapons, um, uh, and to reform their system, to become part of the international community, to open up the way China opened up 40, 45 years ago. Uh, I just don't see we're going to make any progress on this issue. So I don't think we concede it. I think we have our objective over the long term for a denuclearized North Korea. We have to recognize it's going to be a long way and take the necessary measures to both defend and protect our friends and allies in the interim and put the kind of framework in place that at some point may cause North Korea to make that kind of strategic decision. So does that decision. mean you would not negotiate an arms control agreement with them? I don't think because it, that's that's accepting the the program to some extent. If if you could get some kind of agreement that could show it was a step towards and progress towards capping or beginning to wind down that program, uh, I would consider it. But at this point, that's not on offer. Mm -hmm. The administration has made. I I've I've talked to the the folks involved, Steve Began in particular. They have a very sensible approach. North Koreans are not playing. Yeah, They're not playing. That's interesting. I think, I mean, if you, could, if you could achieve an arms control cap at some point for, during the pendency of negotiations as a step, I think that would be a positive thing to do. Why do I think that? A couple of points. <coughs> One is I think that the administration at the outset was on the right track in terms of the maximum pressure campaign. I do. And I think that um, they gave it up too early for the Singapore summit in June of 2018 without getting enough in terms of the protections in terms of growing the program during the pendency of the negotiations. I think it was a mistake. Of course, that, that summit, we'll try not to be political here, but I mean, it's a fair assessment, I think, analytically. That summit was agreed to impulsively when you had in March of that year a South Korea delegation at the White House uh, suggesting to the president that, uh, that, that uh, Kim Jong-un may want to meet, may be willing to meet with him. So I think that we took our, we took our foot off the pedal a little, I think, too early uh, and didn't get enough for it. Uh, the second thing is that... Um, we, there's a dangerous analytical mistake I think we're making here. Steve alluded to it, um, which is that you know, the president has said on a number of occasions, I'm not worried about time. You know, I'm not in a hurry. Right? That's analytically incorrect. Right? Why is it incorrect? Because although there hasn't been a, an ICBM test or a nuclear test uh, during the pendency of these on and off conversations, the program is proceeding apace. Uh, and it proceeds in, of course, a range of dimensions in which outside experts right, indicate that we, they really could be building up enough material for additional, additional weapons. Why do the numbers matter? The numbers matter from a perspective of proliferation, protection of our allies. So I think that's an analytical error. So um, if there's going to be negotiations, they need to take place during a period where you have some sort of interim agreement on capping, on capping activity. I think, that, I think that's, been, that's been a mistake here. Now in history, uh, you said that you didn't. Yeah, think yeah, that, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You said that you didn't. And Steve and I are going to disagree on this, but I'll, uh, <laughs> we did have a period from 1994 till the early 2000s uh, and under the agreed framework, where in fact the at least the plutonium aspects of the program in North Korea were frozen, uh, and then the Bush administration discovered that they were that there were other activities going on, and the, and the, the agreed framework fell apart. We walked away from it. They walked away from it. 
the question presented is a really interesting kind of, the, the broader question. And the broader question is if you find violations of an agreement, do you keep the core agreement and move on to try to address the, the additional violations or do you pull back from the whole thing? We face a similar thing in Iran, I think, uh, that we're going through right now. It's an interesting, it's an interesting, and it's a statecraft question. Yeah. And it, and it's an interesting is, question. Yeah. It's one thing if you get a half a loaf and they don't want to give you the other mm -hmm. loaf, do you accept the half a loaf? The problem with North Korea in that situation is they s committed to giving up all of their nuclear programs, only disclosed the reprocessing, which is one path to a nuclear weapon, failed to disclose that they right. were pursuing an enrichment program, right. which is another path right. to a nuclear right. weapon. And so what is the penalty when a person dies to you, and how credible yeah. can you continue to deal with them? Yeah. Right. Uh, what they did in that case is, is, is they tore down the old Yankee Stadium only after they built the new Yankee Stadium. Exactly right. right. Yeah. I think one of the things we have to say, uh, uh, Tom and I represent now between us three administrations which failed to be able to keep North Korea in a nuclear agreement. Yeah. And it has to make us a little bit, I think, chastened before we criticize the Trump administration. I would say to you, one of the things I think the insight they had and that President Trump had, which was right, was you're not gonna solve this problem with a bottom-up traditional arms control approach. We've tried that three times. You're gonna to have to convince Kim Jong-un to make a strategic shift, and that's what the president was trying to do, and I think he's right about that. You can criticize the tactics all you want, but I think that insight that he's gotta make a strategic shift to go in another direction if you're going to solve this problem, is basically right. And the question is, can we follow up on yeah, that insight? That's fair, and, 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 the, and, and he hasn't made that decision. It hasn't he has not. There has not been a strategy. And Steve Began's been honest about that, and the, the president's special representative, now Deputy Secretary of State, has been clear about that. They haven't made the strategic decision. Uh, but I do think it's... In, uh, I do think that the pressure campaign was pulled back too quickly. I think you could have gotten to put a lot more pressure on them. And I do think that we should be careful about our assessments and our statements saying that we don't worry about time progressing here yeah. because time yeah, yeah. is not our yeah, friend yeah, here. Yeah. Now, we may have to get to the point where Steve said, which is basically that we've got to be able to, and we should be doing this anyway, uh, be able to, to address yes. a, a, a program here which is a real threat and build up our defenses for ourselves and our allies. But I, I, I just think that that analytical error uh, is, 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 a, is a serious one and not one the president should continue to repeat. As unorthodox as it was, the one aspect of the president's approach that I liked, and I get the strategic point, was, I don't know if there was an understanding or not, but it is hard to overstate the degree of distrust on the North Korean side of us. Right. And it's impossible, I think, for them to make a strategic decision without a building up of trust. And in that society, it is impossible for that to happen at lower levels, it's got to happen exactly at the top. Exactly right. Exactly right. Tom, you mentioned proliferation. Yeah. And I want to ask, how do we deter North Korea selling a nuclear weapon? They have, they have sold everything they have ever made, including nu nuclear technology, to the Syrians. They've sold everything they ever made. How, it, it's pretty easy to see how we deter use how do we deter a sale of a nuclear device? It's tough. This, yeah. If you read um, Vice President Cheney's memoir of his time in the administration, um, probably the whole last third of it 
is devoted to this issue. And he was of the view that that is the central problem and that because North Korea actually worked with the Syrians to build a reactor which was in Syria, which was to provide nuclear material for Syria for ultimately a bomb, we should have retaliated against North Korea to make the point that you cannot sell. Um, the counter argument was we didn't only want North Korea not to sell, we wanted North Korea to give it up. And we were in the process, in the middle of a process that we thought offered that prospect. Because the only way our friends and allies are going to be comfortable in the region is not if North Korea just doesn't sell. They're only going to be comfortable if North Korea in the end of the day doesn't have it in the first place. So this is a difficult, uh, difficult issue. And uh, I think one you deter by denial. That is to say, you have your intelligence. When you have an opportunity to show that they've sold, you whack the person who's bought, you destroy the capability, and you hold them up to uh, uh, sanction. I think you do do sanction. I think that would be a, a good grounds to return to the maximum pressure campaign. In some sense, you almost wish North Korea would make that mistake because it would allow the international community then to come back together to, to further isolate diplomatically imposed sanctions, which is an element, I think, of what our policy needs to be. So I think that's where I would go, um, rallying the world in the event there is proliferation, rallying the world to reimpose isolation and sanctions on North Korea. Uh, it's a much trickier proposition to threaten use of military force in retaliation for a proliferation incident. Yeah, it would be a basis for a global maximum pressure campaign, and I think we need to make that clear to the, our, our partners in this process, including the Chinese, right. that that would be a basis on which we would engage in global sanctions to the point of embargo, including sanctioning Chinese participation right. in North Korean economic activity. Okay, so let's shift west to Iran. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to get into the details of the Soleimani strike and the aftermath. I really want to try to keep this at kind of the 20,000, 25,000 foot level. But two fundamental, two fundamental issues here, right? Nuclear weapons, malign behavior in the region. What's the best approach to dealing with them, given where we are now, right? We've pulled out of the JCPA. Let's not debate that. Let's talk about where we go from here, what makes the most sense. Well, I, I, I can start if you want. Uh, that, sure. That's a... Uh, I think I'd add a couple, Mike, to the core interest that the United States has, I think. Um, obviously, you know, a central concern of the United States uh, over the course of both Steve's administration Steve worked in, this administration I worked in, was, uh, North, was uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program. And we worked our way to the point where uh, we uh, froze it and rolled it back through, through the nuclear, the nuclear deal. That was, a, remember, and this was the, the overwhelming focus of U.S. policy in terms of our interest in the threat that it presented to the United States. That's the first point. The second point, obviously, Iran's uh, malign behavior in the region. But I would, I, I'd, I'd add to that ISIS as well. Um, that's a core concern uh, for the United States. It being, uh, again, over the last two administrations, the Obama administration into the Trump administration. Um, and that is, that, that's been damaged, I think, uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks. I mean, the model that was put together initially in the Obama administration and carried over by, by Secretary Mattis into the Trump administration was a very effective model in terms of uh, uh, doing a kind of disestablishing the caliphate and putting continued pressure on the, um, 
uh, on ISIS with, by the way, a, a uh, kind of a modicum of U.S. forces, right? Not a mass force, but a, but a very effective and well-conceived uh, force. And I do worry that that core interest, that second core interest in addition to the nuclear program, has been diminished here. So we'll see if it can get reestablished. I hope it can. That was also, by the way, uh, harmed to some extent by the pullout from northeast Syria, uh, northeastern Syria uh, as, uh, uh, as well. So I, I'd look at this by trying to keep an eye on our core interests, which in my view uh, are really the, in terms of the U.S. interests, are the, are the, are the nuclear program, uh, the threat from ISIS, and then the stability of Iraq, uh, which I think we do have a we do have an interest in. That would be the list that I would have and keep in mind if I, as I, were, if I were developing policy. It's uh, people have forgotten, but um, the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement negotiated during the Obama administration, was the second agreement, nuclear agreement with Iran. There was an agreement negotiated by the EU3, which was Britain, France, and Germany right. in 2004 and 2005, in which <laughs> Iran agreed to give up enrichment, to give up reprocessing, which would have ensured that they did not have a route to a nuclear weapon at all. And politics got in the way. Ahmadinejad was a candidate for president in 2005. He campaigned on a platform that the nuclear agreement that had been entered into by Iran was a mistake, that it gave up the birthright of Iran for nuclear weapons, that the people, the Iranians who negotiated that were traitors who should go to prison. And when he was elected president, through the intervention of the supreme leader, I might add, he took Iran out of that agreement and re resumed their nuclear program. Uh, the, the complaints against the JCPOA really, in my view, were twofold. One, it did not involve the kind of comprehensive giving up of reprocessing enrichment and therefore could not assure that Iran would not get a nuclear weapon. You can argue whether half a loaf, again, half a loaf was better than the whole loaf. What I pleaded with Obama administration officials, not Tom, I would point out, um, was don't just do the nuclear deal, have a parallel negotiation where you address a ballistic missiles and Iranian activity in the region. And when you roll out your nuclear deal, make it part of an overall strategy for, de uh, uh, for dealing with all three aspects of Iranian behavior. That without that, it was going to make it very difficult to maintain the nuclear agreement. Unfortunately, that is what happened. Um, I think the Trump administration is genuine in its desire to return to negotiations at some point and try to address not only improving the nuclear deal, but address ballistic missile, the, the ballistic missile program and Iran's activity in the region. The truth is you can't address effectively Iran's activities in the region at the negotiating table. You've got to address them on the ground. You've got to have strategies to check Iran. We had such a strategy in Syria late in the game after we had allowed our position, quite frankly, to deteriorate considerably. We've had a difficulty pursuing and, and, and carrying that through. Iraq is a place, quite frankly, where the Iraqis have had enough of Iranian influence. And it was Shia that were demonstrating it's time for Iran to reduce its influence in Iraq. That's the effort we need to make. We need to make efforts on the ground to help countries and help people resist 
external influence, which in this case is Iran, and which is not benefiting them, but is benefiting only Iran. You know, it's interesting, but it, goes, it does, it does um, go back to your point earlier, Michael, about uh, allies and partners. Um, I think the right approach here, and Steve and I talked about it many times, the right approach from my perspective would have been to keep the JCPOA in place and then to immediately move to a set of follow-on negotiations. Uh, why is that? Uh, one, because you did have, for some period of time, um, a, a freeze and a rollback of the program, number one. But number two, we had in place at that point an anti-Iran or a counter-Iran coalition, which could have been used in a negotiation, I think, to more effectively deal with some of the, uh, with some of the problems. And I think that's, that essentially, I think, is what the Trump administration would want to get back to, ultimately, which would be to have a baseline, a baseline agreement with respect to the nuclear program and then move on to a negotiation around these other activities. Unfortunately, we have, we've paid a price with respect to the European allies for sure, and I think it's analytically correct, and we've paid a price with respect to other partners who could have been on the other side of the table in pushing those negotiations going forward. But I'll go back where I started. It is really important for us, though, to keep in mind core interests and not get distracted. And the core interests are the nuclear program and its progress uh, and um, the ISIS threat. Did the Bush administration or the Obama administration ever consider taking out Soleimani? I don't remember uh, any uh, formal consideration of taking out Soleimani. I noticed that Stan McChrystal wrote an article in the uh, winter issue of Foreign Policy saying that in January of 2007, he was tracking a convoy uh, heading towards Erbil in which Soleimani was uh, a passenger, and he thought about whether to take him out at that point, decided not to. Uh, I don't remember that incident. I may be wrong. Others, my colleagues, may remember it. I don't remember, I don't remember that coming to the admin, to the uh, to the White House either before, during, or after he was considering that. I think it was a ground level activity. We were worried about what Iran was doing. We wanted to send Iran a message to knock it off in terms of their attacks on our uh, men and women in uniform in Iraq. We uh, were able to. You may remember. Uh, arrest and, mm -hmm. and, and detain sure. some Quds Force Not members long, but <laughs> uh, yeah. and to send that message that we know who you are, we know where you are, and we can reach you. Uh, I hope that message, I think that message had some effect. Unfortunately, the Iraqi prime minister intervened and forced us mm -hmm. to let them go. Yeah. Uh, but that's the kind of thing I remember uh, doing. I don't remember mm -hmm. formal contemplation about going after Soleimani. So we, had a, we, we had, obviously, during the latter years of the Iraq war, had a lot of back and forth with the Shia militias and uh, vicious back and forth, probably, with the Shia militias in, inside Iraq. I don't, I don't recall a project along the lines that you're, mm -hmm. that you're talking about. But it is interesting, though, uh, that I don't know that there was any serious, any serious attacks on U.S. forces inside Iraq from around the end of 2011 until this past fall. It's an interesting, and we can discuss the reasons why, but it's an interesting. It's, an, it's a very interesting point. There's a lot of reasons for it. Um, but I do think that that was that period where you didn't have those kinds of sharp attacks from uh, Iranian-backed and directed uh, Shia militias inside, inside Iraq for that period. And, and that's a terribly important point because yeah. what's really going on and what I think a lot of people have missed is that in the fall there were demonstrations in Iraq by even Shia Iraqis against Iran, saying, out, out, Iran. And it's pretty clear that Soleimani, uh, working with Qatab Hezbollah, which is one of the Iranian-backed militias, yeah. decided it was time to change the subject. And so they started attacking bases in which U.S. personnel were present. 
and it happened over a period of two months and finally resulted in a U.S. contractor being killed and four American service people being wounded. And that began the, the, the process of action and reaction between the United States and Iran. But it was a calculated effort to try to change the conversation. People would say, well, by by striking Kitab Hezbollah, by killing Soleimani, we played into their hand. That may be true, but you can't stand by and let them resume killing our people on the ground. And so what the administration, I think, tried to do in a bold move by killing Soleimani was to up the stakes and send a message to reestablish deterrence that we are prepared to, if you kill Americans, you are going to pay a heavy price. Yeah. And I think that's what the administration was trying to do. You can argue about the consequences and we all the rest. We went right to the top of the escalatory but, ladder there, though. Well, yeah. we did not hit, hit no. targets in Iran. No. There was a lot left on that escalatory no. ladder. It's very interesting that Pompeo made the, the comment that if the Iranians do retaliate in a way that kills Americans, we won't just hit them in Iraq. We will be looking at targets in Iran. So I think it was an effort precisely for Tom, for the reason Tom said, in a calculated way, they started going after our people again. And the administration was trying to reestablish de deterrence and get the Iranians to knock it off. Yeah, it's an interesting point, though. It shows a couple of things. Number one, there was a period um, from really, dis really January of 2012 until October of 2019 where you didn't have those kinds of Shia militia attacks on U.S. interests. It also shows, by the way, the direct control that Iran has over these Shia militias, which was a, it was, a, it was a basically part of their response to the maximum pressure campaign, and they right. had they had direct control over the tactics and the targets that the, these militia groups undertook. Yeah. So let me ask one more question. We're running short on time. What should we have talked about that we didn't? I think uh, it's hard to overstate any, the potential impact that technology is going to have on all these issues. On the domestic platform we talked about on which our foreign policy is going to be based, on the military competition that you're going to see between the United States, China, uh, and Russia, on the, uh, the capacities of non-state actors like terrorist groups, um, and uh, I think also on state-to-state -state relations. So I think one of the great uh, areas where the, the new administration or the continuation of the Trump administration, one of the issues for the 2020s is going to be the issue of technology. And interestingly enough, the consequences of it domestically, in terms of our own economies and our workforce and all the rest, are going to be both the negative and the potentials for artificial intelligence to improve everything from med medical exams to how you hail a cab, um, there are positives and downsides. And these are an area where even the United States and China, despite their disagreements in other th sectors, this is an area where we should be working with uh, China and other countries to try to identify how we're going to manage the diseconomies of technology, technological change, and how are we going to exploit the opportunities they present? So this is one of these examples where China is a problem we have to manage, but also an opportunity to help us deal with problems that we face in common. You know, Michael, technology needs to be constantly at the Situation Room table hmm. uh, from now on. And we've had, you know, we had a, obviously generations of policymakers. Uh, in this country who haven't been as fluent in technology mm -hmm. as the 
future policymakers are going to have to be. Uh, and if I were back reorganizing the National Security Council right now, I would have uh, technology at the table. I'd have, a, I'd have a, an assistant to the president, deputy national security advisor for technology at the table every day because we have all these issues of first impression, yeah. which are gonna be really dominant going forward. You really can't manage national security going forward without having some more expertise and more fluency in technology than we've had to date. One other issue. We talk about a whole of government. How do you mobilize the government pursuant to a common strategy to achieve a common objective? A lot of these problems you need not just government, you need whole of society. Yeah. You need the business community. You need the NGO community. You need the universities. One of the real challenges for the, new, the National Security Advisor of the 2020s is how do you have not only a whole of government strategy hard enough, mm -hmm. how do you mobilize a whole of society strategy in dealing with some of these problems? You know, Michael, we haven't talked about the private companies, right, in this conversation. And I just, I just conclude with a couple of things from my perspective. There really needs to be a serious conversation about the responsibility of the private sector companies and the technologies they brought to bear. You know, we talked earlier about past eras, right? Um, the most important advocates with respect to arms control uh, and understanding the impact of the atomic, of atomic weaponry were the developers of atomic weaponry, where they took responsibility for the societal impact of the technologies that they had brought to bear. That's a really important point going forward. Yep. Last is cyber. I'm concerned uh, going into this year about cyber for a few reasons. We're gonna have a f uh, uh, impact on the 2020 election. We know that the Russians and others are going to come and try to disrupt again. Uh, second, we know that we are now increasing tensions with cyber-capable adversaries, not just Russia, but including North Korea and, and Iran. We have technologies that are developing. We're, we're moving towards a revolution in deception in terms of technologies. We've seen a rise in ransomware against weak links of states and local areas. We saw stories recently about the um, vulnerabilities of cloud, of cloud services, and we have a massive expansion of IoT, um, IoT devices, which are, gonna, things. Which, are, things which are gonna present challenges. We have really not even come close to having the all of government of focus we need, I think, on cybersecurity and on technology. Much less all of society. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both very much. Tom Donilon, National Security Advisor to President Obama. Steve Hadley, National Security Advisor to George W. Bush. Thank you both. Thanks, Thank Michael. you. That was Steve Hadley and Tom Donilon. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.